Jay, whatever happened to William Stryker? You mean the anti-mutant evangelist from God Loves Man Kills, Miles? Right. I mean, I know he went to prison, but he seems like too iconic a figure to not come back in some form. Oh, he came back all right. First, there was God Loves Man Kills. Two. Right, right. Was that the one where he seemed to turn good? Yeah, but it was all an act. See, after M-Day... When the Scarlet Witch depowered most of the world's mutants... Stryker figured uh, that was a sign that he should go back to the mutantating business, and he killed a bunch of Xavier students before Elixir took him out. So Stryker's dead. No, no, no. He got a robot body from Bastion and the Purifiers. So he's... But Archangel decapitated it. So... But then he got another robot body, ended up in charge of the Weapon X program, and started trying to make mutant Hulk hybrids. How'd that work out? Badly for everyone, including Stryker, whose dismembered torso Sabretooth ended up attaching to a nuclear reactor. That's one way to take care of a problem. At least until that problem resurfaces in Nebraska with a new set of limbs. He's worse than Magneto! In a number of ways. So what did Stryker do in Nebraska? Take over the state home for foundlings? No, but I see what you did there. No, no, he started a new church. This time it was satanic, though, because he determined that God wasn't too into his whole anti-mutant stance. Oh, that makes sense. So the next time Stryker got killed, straight to hell. And that was that? No, no, a bunch of mutants had to head down to hell to kill him again properly. Did they? Not only did they succeed at that, but Sabretooth was actually able to use Stryker's final actual hell death to bring back... One of his allies? Anti-mutant demagogue Graydon Creed. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 334 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. But for real, the story where Sabretooth's incarnation of X-Force goes to hell to, like, extra-kill William Stryker, that's a fun story. I love the idea of someone so awful that you not only have to kill them, but you have to follow them to hell and kill them again. Oh yeah, no, Stryker just gets so comically terrible. I mean, also legitimately terrible. Like, I realize it's strange to say that a bigoted religious fanatic is one of my favorite villains, but he kind of is, at least at that point. Well, he he goes from, like, religious fanatic to just cartoon. I mean, he basically takes a ride on the Cameron Hodge train. He totally does, and it's great. But we're not talking about Stryker, we're not talking about Hodge. I guess there is a bit of a Sabretooth connection, because Sabretooth and M kind of had a thing for a little while to Generation X. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about Generation X today. Hey, so Generation X, as you may recall, includes adults born between the years of 1965 and 1980 and was immortalized in Douglas Wait, Copeland's wait, 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 no, no, no. Uh, Generation X is the third ish generation of X-teens currently enrolled at the Massachusetts branch of the Xavier School. With Professor X busy turning into Onslaught, the school is being run by the trio of Sean Cassidy, that's the former X-Men Banshee, Emma Frost, who's the former White Queen of the Hellfire Club, and the third party, their continual sexual tension. So, who is in this class slash team? 
All right, so we've got Jubilation Lee. Jubilee, former X-Men who can create tiny fireworks or occasionally very large fireworks and will never let you forget that she used to be a member of the X-Men. We have Everett Thomas, Sync, who can ambiguously synchronize with other people's superpowers and that basically just does whatever the story calls for, but he's great. Monet Sanquois M, who is smart, strong, and super tough, and can fly and is psychic, and basically is perfect in every possible way, and can be kind of a jerk about it, but has hella dark secrets, which will be surfacing, at least in part, in the arc we're looking at today. There's Angelo Espinosa, Skin, who has a large quantity of baggy prehensile skin that he has to concentrate really hard to control. He's gross and cool. Paige Guthrie, Husk. Cannonball's kid sister, who can rip off her skin to reveal different kinds of skin underneath. Also gross and cool. Jonathan Starsmore, Chamber, who accidentally blew off his upper chest and lower face when his psionic blast powers first manifested. He, also, is gross, and also is cool. Most recently, Mondo, a laid-back mutant who can merge his body into any nearby substance. Usually cool, rarely gross. During the team's first adventure, they faced a creepy genetic vampire named Whoa, 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 whoa. Genetic vampire? So, the way I was describing this when I was talking to Anna earlier was that genetic is to X-Men stories as quantum is to New Age nonsense. If you want to make something sound a little extra cool, you just throw that word in there. It doesn't have to mean anything. Okay, but, like, we can agree that this is stupid, right? It absolutely is. I mean, I think what the story means by saying that he's a genetic vampire who devours genetic marrow is that <laughs> uh, he he basically siphons energy from mutants who, you know, have genes. Uh, I mean, like, cooler genes. No, but he literally eats bone marrow. Like, he, he makes a lot of direct allusions to that. Right, but mutant bone marrow, which again, uh, fancier genes in that marrow, because mutants. It's the X Factor, or the Essex Factor, if you listen to Mr. Sinister. I hate everything about this. Well, anyway, in issue number one, Generation X went up against M-Plate. His deal, aside from what we just talked about, is that he phases in and out of reality in hunting his mutant victims. They also met... Emplate's former captive Penance, who was a silent girl with razor-sharp red skin, she's been staying with Generation X since her rescue. Which brings us to Generation X number 12, The Return of Emplate, in which Emplate unsurprisingly returns. The story is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by Mark Buckingham, Mike Sellers, Mark Morales, Al Milgram, Joe Rubenstein, and the entire Mormon Tabernacle Choir, colored by Steve Buccolato and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Actually, I think I did some inking for this issue as well, did you, Jay? I didn't know you were a Mormon, Miles. I mean, only occasionally. Only for inking purposes. So, we joke about the plethora of inkers, but this issue is actually a really great study in the difference that different inkers can make, because you can really, really see the shift from page to page. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Tom Grummet, I, I tend to like his art all right. He's uh, a very solid fill-in artist. I think we've covered a number of issues he's done before. But yeah, his art looks pretty damn good with certain inkers, and kind of awful with others. And of course, we don't really know which inkers are on which pages. I'm sure there are some people with a good enough eye for inkers that they could tell, but but I sure can't. Well, he's going to have one inker on the next next um, issue which I think gives a much more solid sense of, of what, what's Inkers and what's, what's Grummet, and also will make it easier if you go back to disambiguate at least Mark Buckingham's work. Well, that's entirely fair. 
So Buckingham, as you may recall, was um, is is an inker who was really part of what we think of as as Chris Bacello's signature art style. Like Buckingham inked Bacello for years and years and years just as the primary person who did that and added a lot of the texture that we saw in his work in this era and it's in Generation X and especially in Generation Next. But um, M-Plate is not a nice dude and appropriately it's also no fun to be M-Plate as, as is established immediately. They rake at him with cold, dead claws. Their touch is that of burning ice as they tear and rip at the countless layers of scar tissue that were once this creature's flesh. He twists and writhes in agony as talons find their purchase, pulling at him, rending tattered ribbons from his ever-replicating skin. It seems an eternity of mind-numbing pain as he drags himself along, climbing through this realm of physical torment and torture, traversing this nether void between his dimension and our own. This first page is... Gorgeous. I mean, it's horrific, but it works so well. So we've seen on plate before. We know that he wears this big, massive cloak. That he's got this strange, wrinkled or scarred or distorted or something gray skin. He's got a big respirator gas mask that he wears. And here we see him naked, this emaciated, as the t- narration tells us, scarred creature with all of these disembodied clawed hands just reaching out from every direction it's terrifying yeah you really get the impression here that nightcrawler won the teleport hell dimension lottery we're gonna learn a lot more about why mplate spends so much of his time in this terrible torture grabby hand dimension much later but for now it's intriguing it is an effectively thrown out there mystery that adds, I think, another interesting layer to an already fascinating, intriguing villain. We know so little about M-Plate, and so getting just those little hints, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like when we learned little bits and pieces about Wolverine, before there were enough Wolverine stories that we probably know exactly how he takes his coffee, depending on what country he's in and whether he's Patch or not. I mean, I assume he pours whiskey into it under most circumstances. Yeah, probably true. Has it ever been determined whether caffeine has any effect on Wolverine? I mean, we know that it takes a ton of alcohol to counteract his healing factor enough to actually get him drunk. So I would assume caffeine would be the same way. I mean, it alters his standard, like, homeostatic way of being, so maybe his body would see it as something from which to heal? Possibly. Now, back to Emplate. Emplate is having a particularly rough time because his stable source of sustenance is gone. He was really reliant on penance. And we start to get the impression here that Emplate's need to feed on mutants has something to do with him being shunted back to this horrible dimension outside of his own control. Again, we're going to learn more about that later, but it does definitely make it clearer why he's so desperate to get back his favorite victim and, failing that, seek others. So... Here we get an aside to Penance, and this is really interesting because it sets up what was originally supposed to be Penance's backstory. Now, if you follow the podcast, you know that Penance is actually, at this point, Monet Sanqua, and the character we think is Monet Sanqua is two of Monet Sanqua's younger sisters. Yeah, I know. But originally, that was not the pe- plan. Uh, Penance was supposed to be a Yugoslavian refugee named Devet. 
And we've seen before, and we see again in this story, into her head, where there are all these visions of refugees wearing rags, fleeing or being oppressed by the military and tanks and stuff like that. So later on, this is going to be explained away once the writers decide, no, 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 this is just Monet. They're going to tell us that the reason she's called Yvette sometimes is because M's full name is Monet Yvette Clarisse Maria Therese Saint-Croix. So there you go. It's like the David Bruce Banner thing. We just got to go with it. Sure, why not? So what's Penance up to? Well, Penance has been getting a little more comfortable with Generation X, with the grounds of the Xavier School in Massachusetts. Essentially, she's a very, very skittish cat, and she's gradually been coming a little bit closer and allowing herself to be pet and fed once in a while more directly. Emma Frost, of course, takes advantage of Penance's increasing comfort with the place and with the people by waiting for her to let her guard down and then psychically whammying her and diving into her brain to try to figure out what Penance's secrets are. God damn it, Emma, this is why no one likes you. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. As we find out, Emma won't have too much time to be a jerk because she's going to be captured by Emplate and his minions, as will some other people. What about Generation X themselves? What are they up to? Well, until they get captured by Emplate and said minions, they are spending a day on the town. They are in Boston, um, and they are they are getting to to run about and have teenage hijinks. Now, Jono and Paige are mutually pining, but unfortunately for well, both of them, he's off to meet with his first love, Gail, whom we've seen in in bits of story in previous issues conspiring with Emplate. I really love Chamber and Husk's, like, romance comic, young love, misunderstanding-based pining. I mean, it's right there in the dialogue. Chamber starts, Ah, but if I could only tell her. If I could only tell him. It's great. Also, I'd like to remind everyone who may have forgotten that their first almost kiss uh, ended up blowing up the girls' dormitory back at the Massachusetts school. As do all good kisses. Yup. But it's just pining for now because, like you said, Jay, Chamber has a meeting with his ex, Gail. And as he's walking into the restaurant where he's going to meet her, we see him with his usual look. I mean, he's got that scarf wrapped around the lower half of his face with his nose sticking out the top. And I think it's a sign of the times that the first thing I was thinking, despite all the continuity, despite all the soap opera tragedy, was pull your mask up over your nose, Chamber. You're not helping anybody with that look. Right? Him in the shadow. I know. And then I remembered that's very 2020, 2021 specific. Uh, Or 1918. Or 1918. Fair point. But not 1996 is the point. Yeah. Different kind of mask. Um. Now, Gail and Chamber are joined at dinner by Chamber's accent, and I just want to state for the record here that Scott Lobdell accents are not okay. I don't know. I sort of enjoy having a slight variation on Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins uh, show up every time Chamber's on panel. They're just, they're, this, is, this is a level of nonsense accent that X-Books have not previously reached. Yeah, yeah, these these things happen. As as X fans, we uh we adapt. We survive. We try. We persist. We sound things out real carefully. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Now again, Gale is working with Emplate, and she makes short work of Jono while Emplate's other minions take down the rest of the team in Boston and Emma back at the school. And during that, Emplate also identifies Monet as his little sister. And we've seen some hints at this before, nothing direct yet, but I always come back to, I believe it was a backup story in the most recent Gen X annual, where we see Monet's diary, which is done with little crayon drawings and small captions, and she mentions that during their first mission, Emplate showed up and ruined everything, like he always does, which is such a thing to say about your brother when you're a little kid. And that's just such nice, subtle foreshadowing that really turns a light bulb on here for anybody who was paying attention to it. Now, as we all know, Monet is actually two of his little sisters at the moment, but again, we're not going to get there for a while. So let's talk about Emplate's minions, because this is, this is quite a motley gang he has put together. He has. So we've already talked a little bit about Gail Edgerton. Now, what we know about her, or at least what's been implied at this point, is that when Chambers' powers manifested, he didn't only blow himself up, he blew her up a little too, and that's why she's in a wheelchair. She's a regular human, except for the Helsing-esque toothy mouth in the palm of her hand. Yeah, that's an Amplite thing. That's an Amplite minion thing. They all have mouths in weird places. Um, now, alongside her is Vincente. He can turn into gas, and you may remember him from Generation Next, where he was actually a member of the Generation X team. I love the way he first appears here. Like, a lot of the kids are at a restaurant, and the server brings out a big pot full of chili, and when that pot is opened, there's purple mist, and it attacks them all. So, you know how Jubilee was Wolverine's sidekick for a long time, but now he's flying solo because he's becoming more and more bestial? Sure. Well, there was that recent story where Wolverine was in Little Asia and was attacked by Steam in a restaurant, and now Jubilee's getting attacked by Steam in a restaurant. It's kind of like that song Somewhere Out There from An American Tale, where the people are talking about how they're under the same sky, even if they're physically separated. Like, they're being attacked by villainous mist, even if they're physically separated. It's heartwarming. And even though we'll see each other only in our dreams, it helps to think we're fighting the same pot of asshole Steam. <laughs> Jay, I'm so glad we podcast together. I have my moments. If I'd actually done that not on the spot, I probably would have come up with something better. So, you know, apologies. Still, getting that live show magic, listeners. Kind of. Eh, terrible, terrible magic. So so who else is Emplate running with? We also have Bulwark, who's this really, really big guy who's mostly naked but covered in straps and belts and strips of fabric he's wearing pants i guess that's true he's just mostly naked from the top up but i, I don't know it's like it, i think it's like one of those things where if someone's only wearing socks they kind of look more naked than if they were just straight up naked i think he looks more naked because of those random strips of fabric and their random placement oh they're definitely leather Oh, okay. Well, uh, that adds to the sex thing, I guess. I mean, we definitely learned that Emplate's really into bondage later in this arc, so probably his minions are all kinky, too. Apparently so. Uh, we've got Murmur. Murmur is, um, I, I don't know what Murmur's deal is. Murmur just kind of seems to be a mummy who talks quietly. Well, he talks not just quietly, but his speech bubbles are, like, unfolding scrolls, like ancient decaying scrolls, which I guess goes along with the mummy thing. Did... Did Emplate just dig up a random mummy and make that mummy one of his servants? Like, is Murmur even a mutant? I looked at the Marvel database, and it lists none as his powers, aside from possibly being stronger than normal. 
can do a pretty good jump t- jump kick, and with Emplate's help, he's got a big mouth in the middle of his torso. But yeah, no, he's he's just a soft-spoken mummy. I did notice that in a splash page with him later, when he is, in fact, jump-kicking someone, his mummy wrappings go all the way around one foot like they're a mitten, but they're wrapped individually around the toes of the other foot like they're a glove. So... Maybe he is a mutant and he does have powers, and those powers are that he can quickly weave and unweave mummy wrappings with his toes from one panel to the next, because it's not consistent between panels. I'm pretty sure that Golden Age Superman straight up had that power. And finally, rounding out this this uh, bunch is DOA, who is, is M-Plate's chauffeur and uh, butler. I love DOA. He's just a little guy with a giant smile who's super terrifying looking and very nattily attired. He's got great big teeth. He does. But, uh, I guess a more normal amount than some Liefeld characters, at least? I don't know, hard to say. I mean, it's the usual number, they're just very large. And that brings us to Generation X number 13, It's All Relative. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Tom Grummet, inked by only Mark Buckingham, colored by Team... I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. And lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And I love this cover. A lot of Gen X covers have a background that's just a pattern of little X-Men logos. And then there's like a framed portrait or action scene or something in the middle of that. And that cheerful, colorful, bright X logo background contrasted with the dramatic shadowed face of M-Plate looking goth as hell and freaking terrifying is awesome, and I think really captures the mix of fun and spooky that Gen X often succeeds so well at. Gen X issues all have that X logo background these days, and I am glad it works for you. I am not a fan, but I'm not a fan for no particularly actually good or objective reasons. I just think it looks bad. Well, that's, that's fair. I mean, opinions vary. It's all relative, like the title to this issue says we actually do see uh m play in a later story before his transformation into his current version and i gotta say i know he's in constant torture but the current look he has in the present day with the gas mask and the cloak and the creepy gray and the spiky hair like it's kind of a style upgrade i mean what price vanity i guess i mean he's he's just kind of cosplaying dream yeah but like sharper dream very spiky. It's very homemade cosplay. Good for you, Emplate. Way to make it work. So, what Emplate is also trying to make work is a good old-fashioned villain gloating session. By the time this issue starts, he has most of Generation X hanging upside down from trees, cocooned in, like, those 90s strips of whatever that are all over the place. Oh! Oh, maybe Murmur helped. Maybe Murmur helps. Maybe that's why he hired the mummy, because the mummy's really good at wrapping people up. But yeah, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but what is with the 90s where anytime you have a hostage, you basically make as if you're expecting them to metamorphose into a butterfly later that day? It's very thorough and probably sexual. Not everybody is bound that way, though. We have M, who we now know is Emplate's sister, tied to a chair with these weird metal tubes. They look kind of like Dr. Octopus's arms. And we have Chamber with this techno harness covering his chest hole. It's a psychic damper. Presumably it also prevents him from, you know, exploding effectively. I guess so. 
But Emplate's weird here. Like, not only has he tied everybody up like he's snidely whiplash, but he's, I don't know, more casually villainous. He sounds a little more Bronze Age, a little more mustache twirly. I mean, here I am, just a humble mutant parasite. And I find I've managed to take out all of Generation X without barely working up an appetite. Between you and me, sister, wouldn't Dad be proud? We learn two things at this point. We learn that Daddy Sanqua tried to cure Emplate's mutant marrow addiction, and that Emplate may be responsible for whatever it is that happened to the Sanqua kid's mom. Stay tuned in future stories for all of that. We also learn a little bit more about Emplate's powers. We know he sups upon genetic marrow. <laughs> But here we also learn that he can gain the powers of the mutants that he absorbs energy from. Right. The reason that he's so spiky looking as a default, that he's got those sort of wild hair spikes, is that he's 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 eaten from penance so much that that's just a permanent fixture. I just kind of figured that it was because he's drawn by Chris Bacello, and Chris Bacello likes drawing people that way. It can be both. It can be both. Now, Gail, who of course was the one with her little mouthy hand to take out Chamber, she's complaining about how, damn it, she was supposed to kill Chamber. She wants her revenge. And during this complaining, M escapes. And Jubilee starts mocking the shit out of Mplate, being her most annoying, terrible self, which she's very good at. Mplate asks, is Jubilee that eager to die that she's deliberately trying to piss him off? Well... If it means I don't gotta hang here and listen to some talk radio psychologist hosting a show for wannabe Magnetos? Yeah, I'll die. DOA cautions Mplate. Ignore her, sir. Think of it as a sort of an incessant death rattle. You doing Peter Laurie and the Raven? I just always figured DOA sounded like Peter Lorre. I don't know why. No, yeah, it scans. I, mean, I was just curious whether you were referencing that specifically. I mean, always a little. And Mplate's instructions uh, give us a little bit more foreshadowing as far as what's going to turn out to be M's nature. Um, he tells DOA to make sure that, that his sister is found and brought back and that he'd like at least half of her alive. These foreshadows are dark indeed. So, continuing with the increasingly specific bondage theme, Mplate decides to bury both Chamber and Gale up to their necks in dirt in a nearby field. For story purposes, I guess this gives them a chance to, you know, hash out some of their problems, but I don't know. For art purposes, it's fucking hilarious. It really, really is. So, Gale is real mad at Chamber, we know that. But it turns out she's mad less because she was paralyzed and more because him changing, him becoming a mutant, him messing himself up and her, that messed up their relationship. It messed up their stable, beautiful lives. And it's kind of called into question here, A, whether she even is still paralyzed or whether she was able to recover. I mean, we saw her stand up in the restaurant. Maybe that was an Mplate thing. That's not, th that doesn't really indicate anything it even if it's being used in the comic semiotically to indicate that she's lying, that's still a bad usage because a lot of wheelchair users can walk some. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was just implied it was more of a more of a Boolean state with her as far as past stories. But it's unclear. Like, it's unclear whether she was to any extent deliberately making herself seem more affected than she was if her entire motivation is just to hurt chamber in any way she can yeah it's it's never really certain whether she's faking the extent of her injury or him being the cause of it because the other implication that's there is that something happened to her later that she still blames chamber for yeah And I kind of wish we had to go more into this. Gail Edgerton doesn't really do much after this story. In fact, I don't even know if she does anything. And it's intriguing. I mean, we've certainly seen the thing where a mutant power manifestation injures somebody else. I mean, remember Rusty Collins? No, seriously. People, do you remember Rusty Collins? Everybody forgets him. Uh, But, you know, it's an interesting seed that's planted here. So M has gotten away at this point, and Mplate sends some of his minions after her, starting with Bulwark. You, you know you know the thing I said about Scott Lobdell accents just being absolutely unacceptable? Uh-huh. Fucking no. No, this is this is not I I cannot accept this accent. This is this is bad and it should feel bad. This isn't even an accent with bulwark though. Like he's German, we learned that immediately because he just throws random words into his sentences to replace English words. Like I could understand if he maybe couldn't remember a word, and he would be, oh, how do you say umbrella, or or whatever. But no, it just seems random, and it's so excessive, and I don't know if that's a joke, or if that's intentional, or what? It doesn't scan either way. The only way I could see it working would be if the gag were that he was pretending to be German and wasn't actually German. But that doesn't come up in here, so I'm gonna assume that he's actually supposed to be German. It's okay. We still have Phantom X and his canonically faked French accent. God, I love that. So Bulwark and M just punch each other from room to room like it's one of Capcom's Marvel fighting games and end up in the Biosphere, the team's equivalent of the Danger Room. Luckily for M, the Biosphere is also currently home to Artie and Leech. And... One of those two can cancel out mutant powers, which means that Bulwark, as he is about to drop a boulder on M, suddenly becomes super scrawny. And that makes the random belts and strips of cloth uh, hang comically loose around him, which I'm pretty sure was the main reason he had that costume in the first place. His uh, pants still fit, though, and they don't fall down to, like, reveal hard boxers or something, which I think is honestly a missed opportunity. I agree, although... I get the impression from this that he is doing the thing that I always wish shapeshifters of this sort, you know, including the Hulk, would do, which is just wearing really stretchy pants. That would work. Or, you know, freaking unstable molecules. That's allowed, too. Unstable pants. Unstable pants. So, Artie and Leecher here. I always love seeing my green Moppet and pink Moppet besties forever. They're delightful characters. Their coloring, though, is reversed here. Leech is pink. Artie is green, it's consistent from panel to panel, it's just wrong the same way every time, and this hurts me. This is why we can't have nice things. Hmm. This and no other reason. This and that accent. <laughs> Those two reasons and no other reasons. This, that accent, and Lobdell's extensive and documented history of sexual harassment. Dianu? Anyway, M flies away to try to help the others... 
and suddenly breathes in a familiar purple mist. It's Vincente. Like we said, this is his 616 version. We saw him in the Age of Apocalypse. His personality seems pretty similar. He's got sort of a dark, jokey, continual sense of humor. What he also has here from the Age of Apocalypse, that was a reach, but I'm going to go with it, is a member of the X-Men who has responded to M's call for help. It is motherfucking Lucas Bishop and his motherfucking absurdly gigantic energy rifle. Very, very large. That brings us to Gen X number 14, Jubilee's Top 10 Reasons Why M-Plate is a Loser. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Pasquale Ferry, inked by Mark Buckingham, who again has once has bested all of the previous inkers in single combat, colored by Steve Buccolato, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. And ah, oh, Ferry is so much better than Grummet. It's such a relief. I mean, I like Grummet's art, but I will agree that Ferry is a great artist. Grummet is very okay. Ferry is good. So Jubilee continues to do her absolute level best to infuriate Emplate fairly successfully. And as the title would suggest, she starts with her top 10 reasons why Emplate is a loser, which is a direct reference to David Letterman's at the time very popular top 10 lists on his TV show. This was everywhere in the mid 90s. I seem to recall that uh, Wizard Magazine used to do this regularly, uh, or possibly the Marvel Bullpen Bulletins page, or possibly both. I don't know, the 90s were kind of a neon blur. I, I think that was a fairly popular gimmick. There's a bit here that I want to talk about, because Amplate has everybody trussed up, of course, and he's deciding who to eat first, and says, Now, what am I in the mood for? Oriental? Or deep-fried Southern? Uncalled for, damn. So hear me out. Obviously, that's racist and shitty as he looks at Jubilee and Husk. But I think it works in the sense that it shows how clearly Emplate only sees people as objects, as food. Like, he doesn't actually see them as individuals. They're just for him. See, I disagree. And I disagree for narrative reasons, and actually for the reason that you described. He sees people as food. He, he wouldn't give a fuck about ethnicity. I guess that's true, yeah. I mean... He cares about he cares about powers. He cares about relative, you know, durability. But he's... Like, racism is a weird quality to tack onto Emplate. In a way, this kind of goes along with what we were talking about earlier. Emplate just seems different in this story than he has in the past. He's petty, he's a little silly, and I guess that level of low-grade racism was sort of silly in the 90s by 90s standards. Twitch. <sighs> but, yeah, like, this is a different Emplate than the one we've seen before, and that seems to directly correspond with him being M's sibling rather than just a big scary villain. So... Jubilee, again, has, has been provoking Emplate, and finally he attacks her. And we learn her strategy, because Jubilee, when she's angry, can't really control her powers, and she suspects that Emplate won't be able to either. And not only can she not control her powers when she's angry or otherwise out of control, but those powers can get very powerful indeed. I'm remembering back in Acts of Vengeance, after she'd been kidnapped by the Mandarin, she blew up an entire building with her normally 
almost laughable firework powers. And later in the Phalanx Covenant, Sync was able to sync Jubilee's powers to himself to, as Emma Frost put it, detonate matter at a subatomic level. I guess those are like the really good fireworks that you can only buy illegally. Yeah, yeah, no, those are the fancy ones you have to have a license for. Yeah, yeah, fair. But yeah, it totally works. Right, uh, he blasts indiscriminately and he manages to inadvertently free everyone in doing so. So, Monet and Bishop take out Vincente and Murmur. It's really cool to see Bishop here. One thing that I always found intriguing, from almost his first appearance, maybe his first appearance, was him talking about the armies of M-plates in the future, who we later would learn were responsible for the death of his sister, Shard. And that connection was always implied. I mean, there's a villain named M-plate in Gen X, Bishop is talking about M-plates in the future, and yeah, here is where it's made explicit, and that's why it's really handy to have Bishop here in this story ready to annihilate Emplate and maybe prevent that part of his future from happening. Bishop also briefly um, comes to and sees Monet as, as his mom, implying that he may be one of her distant descendants. Well, we know for sure that Bishop is a descendant of Gateway, mm-hmm. and Gateway is Monet's mentor and Penance's rescuer. Oh. It's not really how genetics work. Yeah, and it's really never fully followed up on, but, uh, you know, that, that happens a lot in the 90s. So Penance appears to leave with Emplate, but no, she does not. She stops to visit Monet and then rescues Bishop from Emplate by literally stabbing him in the back. Yup. And between Emplate blowing himself up with Jubilee's fireworks and getting punctured by Penance, he's out of here. He's defeated. The heroes are victorious and no longer bondaged. But Penance isn't the only Gen X kid missing. Sync is also gone, and we find out that that's because Emplate knew that Sync was the only one who could beat him, so he brainwashed Sync and sent him home to St. Louis to either recruit or kill the rest of his family. This is cool. Not only does this give us a really organic bit of flow into the next storyline, which I always appreciate. It makes books feel more cohesive when it's not just, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story, but they actually connect. But it works for Emplate, too. We know that Emplate hates happy families. That's sort of part of his deal. That's part of why he's been targeting Monet just so intensely, and as it'll later turn out, targeting Penance. So, I don't know, I, I enjoy the flow of Generation X a- at this point. The book's going to get a lot better, I think, once Chris Pacello comes back, because, I mean, let's be real, Chris Pacello was the best part of Gen X from the start, but I'm enjoying this era of it more than I anticipated. Meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, are there mutant teams from non-Anglophone countries? There absolutely are, so I may be missing some because this is just off the top of my head. But China has, uh, first of all, has Three Piece, whom we met in X-Force. There are several other Chinese super teams that include mutants, but as far as I recall, there's not specifically a Chinese mutant team. Russia has Cyberforce, and Cyberforce has a similar deal to Three Piece. It's a group of mutants who broke off from the larger Soviet super soldiers group. They've also got the Neo-Soviets, who are an entirely mutant group. And X Corporation had a Paris branch that I I believe was, was primarily, if not entirely, Francophone. Now I'm just reminded of Ursa Major from the Soviet Super Soldiers. Remember him? That bear that could turn into a naked guy? Yeah, he was also on Cyberforce. Oh, good. 
Yeah, because everyone was kind of a mutant back then, because mutants sold more books. I should specify, by the way, that Cyberforce is spelled S-I-B-E-R force, like Siberia, not C-Y-B-E-R, like cyber. Wasn't Cyberforce an image book or Wildstorm or something? I mean, the C-Y-B-E-R one. Probably. I bet they didn't have a bear that could turn into a naked man. Miles, an anonymous listener, another anonymous listener, asks on Tumblr, if you were to write an X-Men comic, what character would you want to write about? Man, no one ever asks me this because they all just assume that the answer is Cyclops, which it's absolutely not. I mean, you did write a very good Cyclops comic. And it was fun to do, but if I were pitching, um, he's not the character I'd pitch. Legit. So, I've thought a ton about this. We actually got this question in quite a long time ago, around the time that your comic came out, Jay. And I've been thinking about it since then and just hitting dead ends. I was thinking about all my favorite characters. I mean... I love Longshot's psychology and his personality, but I don't know that I would have much to say about the story bits that almost have to accompany him with the Mojoverse and stuff like that. I love Madrox, but honestly, what Peter David did with him in his second X-Factor run I think is better and more thorough than anything certainly I could do with it. Rogue had most of X-Men legacy about her in addition to being a major X-Men character for a long time. Laura Kinney Wolverine, she's already had basically the perfect epic between her initial solo series as X-23 and then all-new Wolverine by Tom Taylor. And so I was talking to my fiance Anna about this before the episode, trying to figure this out, and she suggested something cool, which is, hey, don't worry about the characters. What kind of stories do you want to tell? And then you can pick a character for that. So I thought about that. I'm not a writer. I've mentioned I'm absolutely not a writer. But I am an occasional storyteller with role-playing games, so I was thinking about the types of stories I tend to go for. So psychologically, I like exploring unhealthy human relationships, especially unhealthy family relationships. I like looking at coming back from guilt and self-loathing and having hurt people. So what you're saying is that you should be the one who should be pitching Cyclops comics. Oh, uh, well, come to think of it, maybe. Uh, But there's more that would be less related. I like the idea of building and discovering an identity outside of one's own history and others' expectations. Again, Cyclopsy. But setting-wise, I really enjoy stories about other realities and other dimensions and how people and characters react as everything around them shifts. I enjoy horror games, so horrific imagery is fun, gothy shit in general is fun, For tone, I like deadly serious stories that are also elevated in emotion and aesthetic, and the more I thought about this, fucking Amplate. I kind of want to write a story about Amplate. He's a fascinating character. Not all that much has been done with him. There's a lot of uh, uncovered grounds there, although I did really like when he showed up, uh, I think it was in an X-Men Legacy story and captured Bling, and it was really fun, but... Yeah, there's just so much bizarre, bizarre stuff with M-Plate and so many cool aesthetics and so many directions to take the character, especially if one was going to go for a redemption story of some sort. Uh, So I guess that's my answer. A book about a character that a lot of people don't remember and probably wouldn't sell, and also that thing I said before about not being a writer. So there you go. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. We turn the mic over today to Sexy Dracula. 
Dracula has traveled far to be here. From Castle Sexy Dracula in Transylvania, to a coffin filled with my native soil in the hold of a cargo ship, to the very cramped Uber that took me to Massachusetts. All because the children of the night whispered of the rise of a new kindred being. A new vampire. But what do I find when I arrive? An overgrown child in a gas mask, bickering with his sister like she took the last Oreo, and granting his servants extra mouths to feed in his stead. Amplate, Amplate, you have so much to learn. Let me introduce you to my vampiric kin. Pete Donnelly understands the importance of elegance. You wear that mask to survive in Earth's atmosphere, and so too must Pete be protected from the thrice-damned sun. But Count Donnelly selects the finest of velvet cloaks with the highest of dramatic collars, the most geometrically perfect of parasols, and the smoothest of SPF 90,000 sunscreen. To be a vampire is to be a victim's forbidden desire. The subtleties of style draw the innocent in so gently, so dangerously. And Cross, the soul devourer, found so much to desire in the X-Man storm, as once did Dracula so long ago. But did Cross merely create ghouls with hand mouths to offer Storm an endless unlife of passion and power? No, M-Plate, because Ed knows that for a proper seduction, one must be direct. With the hypnotic gaze of one's burning eyes, the rich timber of one's alluring voice, the cold yet yearning touch of one's undead hands. Learn from my friends, Emplate. Learn from Dracula. And at least, at least get a cave or something. I mean, come on. This is making me think about Vampires um, versus the Bronx, which was great. Vampires versus the Bronx? Yeah. I'm intrigued. I've never heard of that. It's a movie. It's really good. Oh. It's a lot of fun. Onto the list it goes. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our vampiric show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com, which, by the way, is constructed of our native soil. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, along with original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% thrall and or ghoul supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, but we'll be back with a proper episode in two weeks, hopping out of current continuity and into the sheltering arms of Alan Davis. In the pages of Clandestine.